So I recently had to drop uh, my cat off at my parents' house because um, it was part of when I went away for the weekend. I've been thinking about this because it's so funny to me. When I dropped Lola off, it was just my sister and her husband there. They acted like they've never seen a cat in their lives before. Like, they're like, what do we do with it? How do we, do we have to watch it? What is it doing? Why is it doing <laughs> it? Meanwhile, I know for a fact that my sister grew up with a cat because I also grew up with a cat. Is this like a feigned like inability so that she doesn't have to? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That cat, as it got older, started peeing on things and she has never forgiven all cats in existence for that experience. Okay, did you choose this topic to talk about right now knowing what I'm about to dive into talking about? It did spark the idea and the memory, but I have also just been thinking about it for a while because it was so funny watching these two very competent adults kind of panic because a cat was in the house. Meanwhile, they watch my dog without question. They love him. They have no problem with it. Lola couldn't be easier. Cats are very easy, and they were, like, freaking out as if I had handed them an actual human baby with no instructions. Also, Lola is one of the best pets i've ever met i'm very lucky like she's so sweet she puts up with other people invading her existence so often oh she loves people invading her existence she puts up with she puts up with everything she's a sweetheart she's a saint i'm very lucky to have her and it was hilarious watching these two adults not know what to do with her also chacha was a pain in the ass Tacho was a really good cat until he got old, and then he just became a grumpy old man who didn't give a crap about anything. That was Tracy's childhood cat, by the way. He was yes. giant and orange, and I always thought he was kind of like Garfield. Yeah, he was really, really overweight for a, a lot of his life. Yeah, I mean, he was just a, he was a good boy, but he was just like also a pain in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I think yeah. of him. <laughs> Hi, I'm also a pain. My name's Rowan Hall. Hi, I'm also a pain. My name's Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Every week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you, dear listener, would like to support this podcast, give us a follow on your social media of choice. We are everywhere at Willing and Fable, and we'd love for you to say hi. You can also check out our very cool We Get It Your Goth merch at willingandfable.com, or you could become a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. Our Discord is an even more fun place to say hi to us, and we'd love to have you. Oh, hey, you can also support the pod by supporting the businesses that support us. Greenleaf Geek is the definitive place for custom and curated dice, and you have all heard us gush about Leah's work ever since the day we met her. Leah recently stocked the site with some awesome new gaming gear, and I personally have my eye on the Dragonhide Scroll and Roll Vegan Leather Dice Tray, which it's this rainbowy scale pattern, and it can hold your dice or your pencils if you're going to a home game, and it unrolls to become a dice mat. I cannot shop this website. Every time I pull it up, I make my cart so full. Oh, same. Same. Absolutely. There's also, which this very much excites me, a bunch of new stickers. Many of them are holographic 
and I'm gonna be adding the holographic Green Leaf Geek logo and the Glittery Moon Kitty to my laptop case to go alongside <laughs> of the fact that my Kindle already has two other Green Leaf Geek <laughs> stickers on it. This is a big deal because if you're adding stickers to your laptop case, that means that some other stickers are getting covered up yeah. for this. <laughs> my, with my laptop case, that is 100%. Actually, with pretty much everything, that's kind of the case at this point. My water <laughs> bottle, my iPad, my Kindle, and my laptop case. <laughs> Even my phone. No, my phone, I have no stickers left on my phone. They all came off. <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> head over to Greenleaf Geek on Instagram and Twitter to see pictures of all the fun new additions to the store. And when you shop greenleafgeek.com, please use our coupon code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Or, you can go up to your elementary school teacher and accidentally call them mom, thus ensuring that you will wake up a decade or more down the line still feeling the same embarrassment. But no matter what you do, we're happy to have you. I can't believe you let me write that and put that in for you to say. <laughs> that is my favorite one so far. Maybe it's because it's like one of the few I haven't written, but oh, <laughs> the memories that that unlocked. You guys, like 97.5 times out of 100, Tracy writes these. And I was writing this and I was like, I'm going to do one. And I thought she'd just delete it and put something else. In. No. No, I would never. <laughs> oh, God. I also, with my fifth grade teacher, I accidentally called him dad. And I was like, turn me into a pillar of salt. <laughs> you know what haunts me more than anything? And, and nothing actually came out of this. It was, I think, first grade. I came in, I'm wearing overalls and I have a jacket on. And as I'm trying to take the jacket off, somehow, like, the overall slipped off my shoulder. And I was just like, full underwear for a second no no one seemed to have seen like for for how horrible that could have been i think no one noticed and i've like skated by but <laughs> my brain lives in the alternate reality of what ifs <laughs> since i was like seven years old this was second grade second or first somewhere around there oh my god when i was in kindergarten I was in my aunt's wedding, so I had, like, a little flower girl dress. Yeah. And I wore that flower girl dress basically every day until it could not be worn anymore. <laughs> and I also had a sparkly cape that my mom made that I just w accepted into my wardrobe just like any other garment. Yeah. So you were rocking overalls, girl. Like, you were aces. <laughs> I loved overalls as a kid. That was like my staple. Absolutely not. No. No. You have to take off basically your entire garment to use the restroom? Absolutely not. I know because I accidentally took off the entire garment as a kid when I tried to take my <laughs> jacket off. No. No. <sighs> when adults wear overalls, I'm excited for them because they look cute, but all I can think about is those really cold public bathrooms. Same with rompers. Oh, God, no, again, no, it's the same thing, but they put the zipper in the back. <laughs> I know. There are those ones that clasp. The whole situation is just <laughs> rude. <laughs> All right, Rowan, what are we talking about today? It's probably not rompers. It, it's not, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to link rompers, but I don't think I'm going to get there. This episode 
has been it's been a minute in the development. I think I pitched this maybe last this season. This was originally last season. Yeah, we had to push it because we had a bunch of other topics that came up that we kind of shuffled in priority, but this was this was top priority for season 3 for you. Yeah, this topic is kind of like my baby and I I guess we'll find out why, really. Okay, so today I'm covering <laughs> The Sphinx. I'm so excited. And Tracy might be a little more educated on this than the average bear, but, you know, we're going to go on this journey. When people hear the word sphinx, they usually think of the great sphinx, mm-hmm. the massive 66-foot-tall, 240-foot-long figure situated on the Giza Plateau. Each paw is twice the height of a mid-sized male. It is one of the oldest and largest monolithic statues in the world, and rather than being assembled, it was carved from a single mass of limestone dug into the horseshoe-shaped quarry where it stands. In many ways, we owe its presence in Egypt today to the fact that it has received at least five major restorations since 1400 BC, which is a testament to how captivating it has been to people for ages. I didn't realize it had that many restorations starting that early. Yeah, I regularly forget that both ancient Greece and ancient Egyptian history extends so gosh darn far into mm-hmm. the past. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yes. At the time that the Egyptians were building the pyramids, there were mammoths walking around on this planet. Mm-hmm. The the classic fact of Cleopatra lived closer to us than she did to the pyramids in terms of time. Yeah, that's another brain breaker, and I'd actually love to cover Cleopatra, but that's for another day. Yeah, the whole Ptolemaic period and her Greek ancestry, it's a whole thing. Oh, yeah, the whole situation. When I learned how Greek Cleopatra was and the way that that affected the political... Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) You guys just got a glimpse of what genuine phone calls between us sound like. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We're the coolest girls at the party. We're the coolest girls at a party, maybe. At our party of the two of us. (laughs) The two-person party. My favorite kind. All right, Trace. I pulled up two pictures of the Great Sphinx monolith on the Giza Plateau, so you can see it from different angles. I love it. It is the classic Sphinx with the no-nose, very tan, built out of the sand. The paws are always, I always forget that the the length of the paws is like the length of the rest of the body. Yeah. It's really long. Um, And then, so it's one from the side where you can see that it's missing the nose, but it's got the classic pharaoh headdress with that sort of triangle shape around the head. And then there's one straight on, where you can see the height of the paws. And it's just it's just massive, and it's built in the quarry. And of course, when you're looking at it here, it looks like this great monolith surrounded by vast deserts, when in fact, the reality is there's a lot of modernity that has now been built up around these areas, but it just looks so majestic. Yeah, it has a proportionately small head. Mm-hmm. And... I always forget, you know, there there are these ridges along the body. And I always, I even though I know it's carved from one piece of mm-hmm. limestone, I always kind of somehow have this idea that, like, those are pieces that have fallen off in, like, a, the way a brick falls off. Yeah, I always thought it was 
was weathering. I always thought that all of that. It's, it is. It's weathering from the wind and yeah. from water that was more present in the past. Okay. So it's, it, it wears more similar to the way that like Red Rock Canyon wears okay. in the U.S. And even though I know that, my brain always goes, bricks falls off, fall off buildings, brick fall off sphinx. Yeah. Not it. Do we have, I haven't looked this up in a long time, an idea of what it would have looked like originally and if it was maybe painted or anything? I have some details about that for you. Okay. All right. I will I will hold until we get there. Yeah. So no one knows what the sculpture, the Great Sphinx of Giza, was called during the time of its creation. The Sphinx that a lot of people imagine as the model for this structure is likely a creature with the head and breasts of a woman, the body of a lion, the wings of an eagle, and depending on who you ask, possibly the tail of a serpent. Also possibly the breasts of a lion, but I don't really know what that looks like, so. Um. Mm. Nope. Nope. All I, nope. Uh, a bunch of nipples along its belly. That's all I can think of. I think maybe just no lady breasts, only lion chest. Okay. It's got, you've got options. But this creature that I just described exists in many places around the world. But most people think of the one that comes from ancient Greek mythology. And historians believe the use of the Greek term Sphinx didn't begin until 2,000 years after the Sphinx monolith was carved. 2,000 years after? Yes. That is so many years after. Mm. So remember this quote from introducing Egypt as you picture this time that I'm about to describe. Quote, following several centuries of Persian rule from 525 BCE, the ancient Egyptian empire finally fell under the conquest of Alexander the Great in the year 332 BCE. It subsequently formed part of the Greek Ptolemaic Kingdom and the Roman Empire. Now, we've mentioned Hermanubis in the past, mm -hmm. the god that was created of the combo of Hermes and Anubis. And that is a really great example of one of, of the cultural blending that happened in the late history of ancient Egypt. But during this time of the Sphinx monolith's creation, that is so far in the future. Okay. Okay. So when we say like, oh, well, it's just the blending of Greek and Egyptian culture, we're not there yet. We're thousands of years away from that, it sounds like. Exactly. Okay. And that's really intriguing. So uh, back to the building of the Great Sphinx. It wasn't customary for Egyptians at the time to write down history in the way that we do today. And of the hundreds of tombs at Giza, with hieroglyphic inscriptions dating back about 4,500 years, not one mentions the statue so there was no basically like museum plaque explaining right. the significance of how the brushstrokes meant that the artist hated their mother like blah 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 some suggest that the sphinx symbolized ruti who was referred to in inscriptions from the same time okay. smithsonian magazines describes ruti as quote a double lion god that sat at the entrance to the underworld and guarded the horizon where the sun rose and set. Okay, that makes sense. I could see that being a connection. Now, the statue was covered in sand up to its shoulders, with excavation attempts failing until the Egyptian archaeologist Salim Hassan revealed the statue in the 1930s. So, 
it's under the ability for us to examine it was delayed Mm -hmm. in archaeological history. So who built the Sphinx? I mean, it's probably good that it was delayed. We did not have good archaeological practices for a lot of the 19th century. I was surprised, actually, by how often Egyptian archaeologists were present in the work done on the Sphinx, because I expected that to be so much worse. Okay. I'm sure it wasn't great, but I'm glad it's not as bad as we thought it would be. Right. No one's getting a cookie, but we're still we're still happy uh, in that regard. So who built the Sphinx? The face was disfigured by a Sufi zealot in 1402, quote, to remedy some religious errors. Okay, all right. But we do have access to details like the red, blue, and yellow pigment residue on the sculpture, especially Mm -hmm. on the face. It was likely colored in the same way ancient Grecian statues were, with bright details. My favorite fact is how everyone in Regency is like, we're going to do all white marble because we want to be like the ancient Greeks. We're going to replicate it. And the ancient ancient Greeks were like, nah, dog, we're going to have the gaudiest statues you've ever gosh darn seen. (laughs) Uh, But all the paint's just gone by the time that the Regency people saw it. So they're like, they're so classic and beautiful. Meanwhile, it is like, if you look up the pictures of ancient Greek statues, the way they were painted, oh, they're so (laughs) insane. Insane and tacky, and I love them. This was it. This is very similar, they think, because of the residue that they've been able to uncover. Mm-hmm. People have gone so into detail mapping the Sphinx. Oh, I bet. There are also pieces of a royal cobra emblem from a headdress and a beard that were found during archaeological expeditions in the area in the 19th century. So we know more about the details that it did have. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're sitting there, Dear listener, thinking that the Great Sphinx of Giza was a lady, you are dead wrong. Tracy, do you know that th- what's going on with the Sphinx? Like, did you ever think it was a lady? I don't know that I ever really gendered it too much, but I have associated it with pharaohs because of the shape of the headdress and, and some of the symbols with it. Mm-hmm. But I have heard it referred to as a lady. Like, you always... And, you know, when you talk about the riddle of the Sphinx, you kind of seem to see it feminized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a shit-eating grin on your face right now. <laughs> I'm just so happy. <laughs> <laughs> the most popular explanation for the origin of this sculpture dates back to 1853. That's when the idea was posed. And since... It has been championed by numerous Egyptologists and historians and scientists over the years. So we look to Pharaoh Khafre, who ruled Egypt during the Old Kingdom, which began in 2600 BC, and after 500 years succumbed to famine and civil war. His father, Pharaoh Khufu, built the 481-foot-tall Great Pyramid, which is a Mm -hmm. pretty hard act to follow. Yeah, a little bit. So Pharaoh Khafre built a smaller pyramid nearby, and then about a quarter mile down the way, commissioned the Sphinx. Yeah, the idea with the smaller period was not to outshine his father, but show reverence by not trying to outshine him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also, he basically, the theory is, like, here's the, here's the small pyramid. I love my dad. Okay, now here's my cool thing. Yeah. yeah. And then we have the Sphinx. <laughs> So through the years, various archaeologists have uncovered the world that surrounded the Great Sphinx. 
There was the Valley Temple, the Sphinx Temple, a causeway, a life-size statue of Khafra carved of volcanic rock. There's even a lost city, an old kingdom cemetery about a half mile south of all this, that seemed to be the massive settlement that housed the laborers who created the Great Sphinx and the surrounding works. And judging from the quality and the value of the remains of food that they uncovered at these sites, Mm -hmm. the workers were probably not slaves. No, that theory is so old. The slave theory, it's so old that they don't believe that the workers were slaves at this point. Right. And it's information like the ability to detect what the food was that they were even able to figure that out. They found evidence of like prime beef. Ooh, yeah. I think they've also found evidence of keeping track of the pay of the workers. Yeah, it's the more we uncover, the more the society looks increasingly different than what we thought. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, I remember, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I remember reading a book in elementary school where they show uh, a guy kicking someone off the pyramid as a slave as he's like whipping someone else. And they're like, yes, slaves were forced to build the pyramid. And it's just so... We've learned a lot more since then. Smithsonian Magazine called the work either a national service or a feudal obligation. Yeah. So there was definitely societal structures going on. Mm -hmm. At the time of its construction, 45 centuries ago, Egypt did not yet have iron or bronze tools. This meant that the Great Sphinx of Giza was carved entirely using hammers and copper chisels unimaginable. I don't know if folks have spent a lot of time with copper, but depending on the specific metal that you're holding, sometimes you can dent it with your fingernail. (laughs) Now, this is really cool. For a Nova documentary, one of the world's leading Egyptologists and Sphinx authorities, Mark Lehner, and Massachusetts College of Art professor of sculpture Rick Brown and a team of art students got together to try to discover how long it would have taken to create the Great Sphinx. Tracy? Mm Mm-hmm? I know that you're obsessed with, I don't know what it's called. I think it's just called, like, living archaeology or, 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 uh, like, practical archaeology. There's a term for it, but it's where you do the practices from historical time periods to try and get an experience of what it was really like, like, get along castle in France, which they're building using only 14th century tools and techniques. Are they still building it? Yes. Yeah. You can still, you can visit it because it's a good chunk of it is put together, but it is like a a 20 year long project, I think maybe. God. Oh God. Okay. So guess how long it would have taken to build the Great Sphinx. It's not 20 years. Okay. Oh, and imagine you've got a hundred workers. So here's the thing that I'm really bad at, which is estimating time like this. Um, I imagine it would be a lot of work. Uh, nah, so, no biggie. <laughs> um, I, I'm just going to say five years. Okay. So because the copper chisels dulled after a mere few blows and mm-hmm. they needed to be constantly heated and resharpened, it would have taken 100 workers three years to their estimation. That's so long. You were really close, Tracy. Like, objectively. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad I wasn't like, I'm glad you were like, it would be three months. Like, it was, I was kind of oh, close. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> it would have taken them 500 years. 
That See, that's a time that seems more reasonable to me. Like, anything with copper chisels. <laughs> it's a soft metal. The History Channel explains more of the findings of Mark Lehner and his frequent collaborator, Zahi Hawass. I know of Zahi Hawass from all of my ancient Egypt documentaries. He's a very famous Egyptologist um, who has who's made his ranks throughout uh, antiquities, specifically ancient Egyptian antiquities. Work. I actually don't know a ton about him. I feel like I just recognize names because I've seen them. Tracy's the Egyptologist in the family. It's honestly ridiculous that I'm covering this topic. Um, I love it. This is a gift. I get to get all the fun knowledge and not have to do any of the work. <laughs> so, Zahi Huas is the Secretary General of the Egyptian Supreme Council of Antiquities, and he also controls access to the Sphinx. History Channel says, quote, Khafra's architects arranged for solar events to link the pyramid, Sphinx, and temple. Collectively, Lehner describes the complex as a cosmic engine intended to harness Ooh. the power of the sun and other gods to resurrect the soul of the pharaoh. This transformation not only guaranteed eternal life for the dead ruler, but also sustained the universal natural order. The Sphinx may have stood for many things, as an image of Khafra, the dead king, as the sun god incarnated in the living ruler, and as a guardian of the underworld and the Giza tombs. The idea of describing it as a cosmic engine <laughs> is so cool. Yeah, so depending on where you stand in this area, there are the pillars of the Sphinx Temple and the monolith itself will align. And depending on the specific solar event, like one of the yearly equinoxes, he explained that they there would just be a magnificent effect looking toward the sun. That is so cool. I, I love that. Just imagine getting to stand there and see that. Yeah, and to thinking, going back and thinking, like, maybe this was modeled after Rudy. It makes sense because mm -hmm. of his association with the sun rising. So all of these pieces have come together over the decades. And mm -hmm. and basically, Mark Lehner and Zahi Hawass have really been on the forefront of this. According to a tale that describes a pink granite slab resting between the paws of the Great Sphinx, the pharaoh Thutmose IV, who was at the time only a prince, once went hunting in the desert. When he grew tired, he lay down in the shade of the monolith, and the Sphinx spoke to him in his dream. Calling itself Hormaket, or Horus in the Horizon, mm -hmm. and this is the first recorded name associated with the Great Sphinx. Okay. It complained of the way the sand was encroaching and its body was ruined and offered the throne to Thutmos in exchange for his help. We're now in the New Kingdom, baby, and this spanned from 1550 to 1070 BC, quite a time later from yes. the construction of the Sphinx. So the Sphinx was ancient now to these people, basically. Yes. This pharaoh helped to introduce a sphinx-worshipping cult, and these monsters began to appear in more sculptures and paintings and reliefs across the region. Okay, so we're entering kind of cult worship time for the sphinx. And though we usually think of the Great Sphinx when the word comes up, as I mentioned, th this monster appears in statues and artwork from around the world. Uh, 
There's what the History Channel describes as, quote, the so-called Sphinx Alley in Upper Egypt, a two-mile avenue that connects the temples of Luxor and Karnak and is lined with Sphinx statues. And the Sphinx of ancient Egypt, a spiritual guardian, evolved over time. It was most often depicted as a male with a pharaoh's headdress, but there are depictions of the creature as the female pharaoh Hatshepsut. Or the alabaster sphinx at the Ramesid Temple in Memphis, Egypt, is also female. Mm. We see sphinxes make their way to Asia and Greece by the 15th and 16th centuries BC. And this is where the eagle wings start to come into play. And this is where the Greeks give us the riddle. Okay. Okay. Now, our famous Grecian sphinx, who many may be familiar with, actually, in part or in whole. I've encountered a lot of people who have kind of, like, blended the Egyptian Sphinx and the Grecian Sphinx. Oh, understandably, yeah. I have definitely done that. Oh, I Uh, have, too. I mean, only real nerds like us are going to dig in and really identify the difference. Exactly. So here's the story of the Sphinx from the Bibliotheca of Pseudo-Apollodorus, translated by Aldrich. Quote, While he, Creon, was king, quite a scourge held Thebes in suppression. For Hera sent upon them the Sphinx, whose parents were Echidna and Typhon. She had a woman's face, the breast, feet, and tail of a lion, and bird wings. She had learned a riddle from the muses, and now sat on Mount Physium, where she kept challenging the Thebans with it. The riddle was, What is it that has one voice and is four-footed, and two-footed, and three-footed. An oracle existed for the Thebans to the effect that they would be free of the Sphinx when they guessed her riddle, so they often convened to search for the meaning. But whenever they came up with the wrong answer, she would seize one of them and eat him up. When many had died, including most recently Creon's own son, Haman, Creon announced publicly that he would give both the kingdom and the widow Laius to the man who solved the riddle. Oedipus heard and solved it, stating that the answer to the Sphinx's question was man. As a baby, he crawls on all fours. As an adult, he is two-footed. And as he grows old, he gains a third foot in the form of a cane. At this, the Sphinx threw herself from the Acropolis. Some say that there's actually a second riddle, which may have followed or replaced the one from my telling above. And to me, this next one is much less popular. I'm going to see if maybe you can get it, Tracy, and you might already know it. There are two sisters. One gives birth to the other, who in turn gives birth to the first. Who are they? Here's where you're going to realize I'm really bad at riddles. My friends love them. My friends will just sit around and, like, read riddles to each other. I know. It's bananas. It drives me nuts because I'm bad at them. I do not have the conceptual thinking for it. I'm always too literal. Don't worry. I didn't read this and go, ah, yes, the answer is... mm." All right. So there's two sisters. Peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) Yeah. My my answer is peanut butter and jelly. Uh, There's two sisters. One gives birth to the other who in turn gives birth to the other. Yeah, basically. I got nothing, dog. Day and night. I know, isn't it annoyingly obvious once you hear it? Yeah, I damn. Know, I know. So I hate riddles. I always feel dumber for having got, like, for being given the answer. <laughs> I know. 
when I read this, you know, there was kind of a space in the article where, mm-hmm. you know, you could figure it out and then they'd give you the answer. And I did not get it either. I know. I just always feel dumb. <laughs> Interestingly, and this is going to come into play a little bit later, in the Greek language, both day and night are feminine words. Oh, that's I do love a good play on words like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So let's talk about cats and goddesses, because this episode isn't only about sphinxes. (laughs) Who surprised? No one. Because our gal, the sphinx, though though she has a history as male, she is so commonly thought of as female because of this sphinx that traveled the world in Asia and Greece and the prevalence of those myths where it Mm -hmm. is a woman. This idea is deeply rooted in the feline, and there are goddesses and figures from all over the world that are also associated with cats. Ray Alexandra writes for KQED in How the Crazy Cat Lady Became One of Pop Culture's Most Enduring Sexist Tropes, quote, In ancient times, cats and feminine deities went hand in hand. Egypt's half-cat, half-woman, Bastet, was the goddess of domesticity childbirth, and women's secrets. Chinese cat goddess Li Shu was a symbol of fertility, and in Norse mythology, Freya, the goddess of beauty and strength, rode a chariot led by cats. And there are even more goddesses linked to cats. The Egyptian pantheon has numerous figures that are associated with felines, including Sekhmet and Moftet. In Hinduism, there's Parvati's association with the sacred tiger Dewan, and though not 100% specifically female, since we've been talking about Japanese yokai recently, mm-hmm. there's Kasha, which is a huge cat that carries corpses to the underworld. Okay. I love that. That's great. It's so cool. You should pin that. You should do that episode. It's so cool. <laughs> In her article, Alexandra also points out in much the same way we often do that when the Roman Catholic Church appeared in the Middle Ages... Cats got their reputation for being minions of Satan. Mm-hmm. Which, when we think about, like, the countless gods and divine figures associated with cats in the pre-Christian world, this is a very, very clever thing to do in an ideology war. It is. I don't like it, but it is. An interesting story about that. In 1232... Pope Gregory wrote a letter to King Henry VII of Germany where he described a satanic ritual where these evil worshippers kissed the rear end of a mystical cat. (laughs) Quote, A statue of a black cat about the size of an average dog descends backwards with its tail erect. First the novice, then the master, then each one of the order who are worthy and perfect kiss the cat on its hindquarters. They incline their heads toward the cat. Forgive us, says the master. And the one next to him repeats this. Takes kiss my ass to a whole new meaning. (laughs) And it's important to note here that Pope Gregory was really fond of torturing people for information. So we know what kind of guy he was. We're coming now to the time of the witch trials. And we've actually discussed cats and witches in the past on this podcast. I covered witches familiars in episode 59. Mm -hmm. And I think, Tracy, you also touched on cats a little bit in episode 58 on the Malleus Maleficarum. A little bit, but definitely even just about this time period uh, that was covered in the Malleus Maleficarum episode. 
I highly recommend you listen to those. Uh, But I'll summarize the witch trials for various years in various Christian nations uh, by saying that too many women had to die under terrible circumstances so that male Christian leaders could feel powerful. Mm -hmm. But even after this cat association with women stopped being used as a political device, basically because the church got all that they could possibly milk out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this this negative association didn't go away. So for the next bit, <laughs> Tracy, cast your eyes upon this image. Okay. So it is a drawing of a bunch of women in front of a church all in black clothes very uh kind of the 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 clothes you would imagine for the witch trials of like the uh, is it protestant what is i'm not i don't know (laughs) i don't know uh like that that just very severe black and white with all the aprons and black hats and they're every single one of them is carrying a cat (laughs) <laughs> every last dang one of them as they're walking towards the church and it's like a very muted color um <laughs> they're all different shapes and sizes of ladies too <laughs> so this is an engraving that shows a funeral procession of elderly women all carrying cats following the coffin of a dead cat and it was engraved by J. Petit, designed by fg byron esquire and it is from april 10th 1789 There is lettering on this piece that says, No lover's course this virgin train attend. During this time, a single woman was considered to be a nuisance because women didn't have as much access to jobs. So rather than going off to be supported by their husbands, in the 18th century... Women stayed then, single women stayed with their family, and they were a Mm -hmm. financial strain, and they were a cause for embarrassment. So the image of a single woman with a cat became the symbol for people's resentments at these women. And in the Victorian era, it was believed to be sort of an inevitability that a single woman would get a cat. I feel so freaking called out right now. (laughs) I have a cat. I want a t-shirt that just says nuisance on it. Oh, you're... Oh. No, in like, I'm taking it back. This is not a dig on myself. I love this. I feel like you're going to like the way that this progresses. Like, okay. You know, people reclaim all the things, right? Yeah. Eventually. We get there eventually. Listen, I'm not married and I have a cat. I want a t-shirt that says nuisance and I'm here for it. <laughs> One for Lola, too. Like a little, little top. Oh, my God. A little Lola t-shirt that says nuisance. That's so accurate. In 1800, the Dundee Courier wrote, There is nothing at all surprising in the old maid choosing a cat as a household pet or companion. Solitude is not congenial to human nature, and a poor, forlorn female, shut up in a cheerless garret, brooding all alone over her blighted hopes, would naturally center her affections on some of the lower animals. This is, like, the perfectly normal statement, pets make good companions, turned into the most aggressive the most insulting way possible he is bending over backwards to be as (laughs) insulting to women as possible while saying 
cats make good companions. Right. Person <laughs> who lives alone has pets? Cat good pet? No, but only when they're shut up in their cheerless garret brooding all alone over blighted hopes. I don't even have a cat and I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that action is not exclusive to having a cat, but it does improve the way it looks if you've got a cat skulking around too. It's also probably snugglier. Yeah, it's good vibes all around. <laughs> I thought that you would uh, I- enjoy that quote. <laughs> Okay, so now we're into the 20th century, and women are campaigning for suffrage. Now, this is a narrative that I imagine was most linked to middle and upper class white women, because there was no one unified suffrage movement and racial discrimination was happening. Mm -hmm. But very often, suffragettes were depicted as cats. And this worked as this basically like cheeky meme that told the public, hey, the women who want to vote, they're the lonely single man-haters. Oh, are you getting, like, vibes of feminism of, like, oh, she's just an angry feminist? Dismissing it entirely? Because that's what I'm seeing with that, too. 100%. So, Tracy, these images below and uh, the one above and a lot of the information I've discussed so far is also from the Ray Alexandra article from KQED, which shout out to local California news stations. But I pulled these images for you. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, I... First of all... (laughs) I love this first one. Okay, so there is... (laughs) There's a a background of green, uh, like a a lime green and kind of a cream white and like a a maroonish pink. And then there is a black and white kitten (laughs) mid-scream. And it just says, I want my vote. (laughs) And I get that it's trying to depict like, oh, it's just a little kitten screaming like, man, I want my vote. But it's... (laughs) If this was released in 2022, the meme potential. I know. This... Like, I love this cat. I'm tempted to frame this picture and hang it in my house. (laughs) This is so incredible. It's it's so angry. And I love it. You can imagine the little Mew, too. Oh, yeah. I hear it all the time when Lola screams. (laughs) So this is anti-suffragette art from 1908. I like the next one so much, though. (laughs) The (laughs) next Everyone's such a, a gift. This so is the for next you. one, the next one is um, um, an illustration of a cat. It kind of it looks like by someone who's not seen a ton of cats in their lifetime. Um, <laughs> really angrily, it's got like angry eyebrows and a frowning mouth. Think grumpy cat, but to the eh. extreme. But it's all brown, and it's got one claw, like kind of claw out, and then in its other claw, it's holding "Vote for She's." And it says, the suffragette down with the tomcats. Okay, so I know that it's the suffragette, like, down with the tomcats. But when I first read it, I was like, the suffragette down with the tomcats. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? We can interpret it however we want. They don't get to choose. Okay, this this, This next one is my favorite. This next one is my favorite. Okay, that I take, was... I take it back. I want this one framed. Okay, hold on. I knew that you would. The first one, the last one was a postcard from William Henry L.M. 
Okay, Tracy, this next one I say for last for a reason. Oh my God, I love it so much. Okay, so this one is a, a gray cat with a shawl uh, with a pin that says votes for women. And the shawl, it's a suffragette color. is that kind of lime green, cream, and, and maroon color. Um, and it's got a classic 1910s hat with the big – it's actually got a big bird on it. Um, <laughs> instead of, like, just feathers, it's a bird. And um, it has its paw on top of something that says, we demand the vote. I'm not going to lie. Good <laughs> chance I'm going to find this if it is a, a publicly available image. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to print it and frame it in my house. I love this so much. This is a postcard, and it's from the University of Northern Iowa, Cedar Falls. Maybe they have prints. I knew that you would love this one. Look at this grand little lady. I love her. I love her. She's doing such good work. I can also imagine a cat owner recreating this. Oh, yeah. I would love that. I don't think – I mean, the one thing Lola, like, doesn't tolerate is me no. putting clothes on her. No. She, she doesn't fight me, but she just shakes it off. Um, so if someone else, please dress your cat up as a tiny suffragette. Uh, I would love it so much. <laughs> I just love that the cat's like fluffy and pudgy and cute as heck. It's amazing. It's, in it's incredible. There's nothing I don't love about this picture. <laughs> <laughs> so by the 1960s, women started reclaiming the cat lady narrative. And though it is certainly still used to ill-begotten ends, it is very much in use by cat-owning ladies today. Tracy can speak to that. I unfortunately don't own a cat. Yet. Yet. <laughs> I am kind of allergic. Um, That's why they make allergy meds. <laughs> not enough. But, <laughs> but listen, I do love Lola and I fully stick my face all over her, much to my own detriment. I can confirm Rowan is so gracious about how much Lola wants cuddles and how much Rowan wants cuddles and the two of them just Velcro to each other. Lola and I are matchmen in heaven. They really are. Okay, so we've got some sphinx, we've got some cats and sexism. Let's talk about the sphinx and sexism. Let's do it. I'm primarily referring to the Grecian figure of the Sphinx moving forward. We're out of Pharaoh territory and we're fully into Lady Sphinx mm -hmm. with her riddle eating men. Okay. The ancient Greek playwright Sophocles, in his tragedy Oedipus Rex or Oedipus Roy, describes our monster with her female face, lion body, bird wings, and serpent tail, and he gives her an amount of wisdom that is viewed as disturbing. She is smart, and she was granted a riddle by the muses, and when men didn't live up to her intelligence, she killed them and ate them. Loving it. Loving it so far. And she ate a lot of men, especially young ones, while she controlled the city of Thebes by keeping people from going into or out of it. So unlike a sexualized female figure who may use her, quote, like feminine wiles to control politics, only until the men finally catch her at it, the Sphinx is a giant monster whose intelligence is the insurmountable obstacle. I love it so much. I love it. When Oedipus outwits her, some stories describe her being beheaded, 
But very often, she throws herself from a cliff, defeated and desperately sad. And I'm not sure exactly what to make of that, though it's always really stuck with me. And and you might have a really good interpretation. But to lose the battle of wits in this scenario as a man meant being consumed by a monstrous woman. But to lose as the female monster... As the Sphinx meant a shame so deep that she no longer wanted to live, which may have been a portion of the type of storytelling. You know, very often in Greek myths, when the monster's defeated, it just like disappears through one means or another. Mm-hmm. But I, that detail has just always stuck with me. I have kind of two thoughts on that. The first being... Throwing oneself off of a cliff is a is a theme we've seen more than once in Greek and Roman storytelling. Sappho, especially, yeah, Sappho. As things have moved on, it's it's sort of the romantic way of kind of ending a story. The other side of it is that um, you know, dying by suicide in ancient Greek and Roman culture wasn't seen the way that we see it today. It's not seen as a big sin, this horrible thing. In some ways, it was actually a very heroic way to die. That's why they talk about falling on your own sword. Um, so it could be that this, I I interpret it in some ways as the figure of the Sphinx taking the power back from him into her own hands. She is defeated and she is choosing her, what to her is an honorable way to end her own life. That makes total sense, especially because her identity is wrapped up in this riddle and how she can stop the Mm -hmm. men and... Once it's over, basically her function as it is granted to her in this pantheon is is ended. Mm-hmm. And if you're not super familiar, by the way, with the stories of Oedipus, uh, he defeats her and then he eventually marries his own mother and things get really dark. So bummer, dude. Yeah, not great. And then Freud went on and had a whole field day with that one. Yeah, we neither have the time nor the will to explore that. <laughs> Accurate. This Sphinx is but one of many Greek mythological monsters portrayed as women. There's Medusa and Scylla and Charybdis and the Lymia, and they do not get to be pretty and smart, and they do not get to live. Redemption. 2022. Redemption for all of them. Classicist Debbie Felton writes in a 2013 essay... These tales, quote, spoke to men's fear of women's destructive potential. The myths then, to a certain extent, fulfill a male fantasy of conquering and controlling the female. Yes, yes, yes. I know that is not a universal perception. I know that is a very, you know, feminist take, especially if you're looking in the 70s or 80s. But yes, there are so many stories uh, wherein it is just the cultural fear of what women could be if there were not such a tight reign of power on them over the men, what men could stand to lose by women gaining power. Yes! I think that, what is this, episode 76? I don't know. By this time, we can comfortably say that ideas like this can apply to a large swath of stories and not apply to every story. It, it mm-hmm. I feel like so often these types of conversations are hamstrung because people either shake their fist and go, no, not all monsters. And then on the opposite end, we have people going, no, every single monster. 
Right. And there's just this mid-ground where we really do need to acknowledge the fact that we have these this collection of female monsters that follow the same pattern of absolute destruction. We got to talk about it. It's so rich. It's there. It's so there. And it's so clearly a conduit for a larger cultural fear, the way that so many stories are, but it's specifically against, you know, women and and the fears of what happens if they get power. Ooh, I love it. I love it. You're really going to like this. Okay. In Women and Other Monsters, Building a New Mythology, journalist Jess Zimmerman poses that these female monsters are punished for, quote, keeping knowledge to themselves. Zimmerman writes, quote, Women have been monsters, and monsters have been women, in centuries worth of stories, because stories are a way to encode these expectations and pass them on. She says of our riddle-asking monster specifically, quote, The story of the Sphinx is the story of a woman with questions men can't answer. Men didn't take that any better in the 5th century BC than they do now. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I have this collection of female mythological figures that, like, I love most ardently. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the Sphinx fits right in there. Oh, yeah. Just squeeze her in next to Lean on She, the selfies, <laughs> Medusa. <laughs> That's my thesis, uh, just as a person. I <laughs> Women. <laughs> women. I love it when women. women. Don't you hate it when women? No, I actually love it. <laughs> No, I love when they do that. They should do that more. <laughs> I wanted to also specifically differentiate the Great Sphinx from this Sphinx that has taken over kind of the cultural context right now because they're they're different. Um, mm-hmm. And the Sphinx being associated with pharaohs is very engaging in an entirely different way. Mm-hmm. And it's not my way, actually. I really like this one. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. We're going to bounce back to cats. Okay, let's do Tracy, it. Tracy, I think you'll actually have a, a very keen insight into this. We, I feel like we've talked about it off the podcast, so please like chime in. Mm-hmm. Heads up really quickly for the next just few moments, I'm going to discuss animal abuse. I am not going to go into graphic depictions. I'm just going to throw out a couple sentences, so just skip ahead a little bit if you don't want to hear it. Michael S. Rosenwald, reporting for the Washington Post, said in the article, quote, the disturbing history of cat abuse, public hangings, pipe beatings, and the great cat massacre, that studies show cats are abused at higher rates than dogs or other domestic pets. And this is in every category, from physical harm to killing. The Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy published a paper saying, quote, The historical ambivalence of many cultures towards cats continued into the 20th and 21st centuries, a continuing stream of material promoting or at least making light of cat abuse. This has no parallel in the canine world. Despite their relatively small size and fragility, cats have a reputation as survivors, perhaps due in part to the speed, agility, quick reflexes, and other adaptations that allow them to survive situations that would likely kill a human or a dog. Yeah, you definitely... The, the idea that cats aren't technically domesticated because cats can live on their own without humans. 
whereas dogs aren't as able to. So I can I can see where people look at cats and, and see that there isn't such a need for humans to take care of them and that creating a dissonance dissonance or distance, which I don't feel because I love my little baby cat and I cuddle her all the time and she would not survive on her own outside at all. Oh, not Lola, no. She's scrappy, but she's just not the brightest bulb. She's trusting. She's so trusting and adventurous. Rosenwald continues in his article, they were seen as non-Christian, tools of witches and the devil. Their incredible ability and interest in procreating made them a promiscuous symbol in a time of prudeness. Popes issued orders to kill any cat in sight. The highlight of Mardi Gras was the execution of a cat. Cats were even used for music. Their hair ripped out so their howls could be added to songs. He even describes an instance in the 1730s in France where apprentice printers revolted against their bosses by holding a mock trial of their boss's cats, eventually declaring them guilty, giving them last rites, and hanging them, or more. And this was, in many ways, a reference to the luxury and status symbolized by those cats, and there is a lot of writing about how upset the boss's wives were. Yeah. Ugh, sorry, I'm gonna, I, I'm not gonna say much about this, because I love my animals, and the idea of any harm coming to them, it makes me, uh, miserable, and there's a reason I don't watch any animal movies or anything. I can't handle animal harm, so. Ugh. Why do you think people are more comfortable seeing and discussing harm of humans in media than animals? Because I think it has to do with agency. Hmm. And uh, the idea that at least a, an adult human could potentially fend for themselves, whereas a child or an animal can't. And for me, the idea of them wondering what's happening to them and not being able to articulate, understand, or protect themselves is so emotionally difficult. I think you hit the nail on the head. Thank you. I think about it a lot because I can't stand anything bad happening to any of those things. You've always had quite a lot of pets in the house, and I love that. Yeah, I love animals. So moving forward, please know that I am obviously excluding anyone with pet allergies. Because if you say you hate an animal because you break out in hives or it makes you very difficult to breathe being around them... Mm -hmm then saying that you hate them is a really great shorthand for please don't put that pet on my lap. It will make my life difficult. Um, but there is a conversation to be had about people, specifically men, who hate cats and how that relates to sexism. Yes, let's get into this. Okay. I reference here a quote from science fiction writer Robert A. Heinlein's book, time enough for love, and I like this quite a bit, actually. Women and cats will do as they please, and men and dogs should relax and get used to the idea. <laughs> yes. Have you ever heard of a straight cis man being called catty? No. And then we have slang like catfight and catcalled and pussy, and those words are not used in relation to groups of men unless it is to their degradation, mm -hmm. lowering them to the level of a woman as an insult. Yes. Yes, it is. Now, have you heard someone say, I hate cats, to neutral response only to hear the same group of people get up in arms when someone says, I hate 
dogs. Oh my God. Yeah. I, listen, I'll even admit, I was always like, I'm a dog person. I'm a dog person. I like cats. I grew up with a cat. I like cats. But I'm a dog person. When I got Lola, I had like an identity crisis because I was a, a woman getting a cat, you know? Like that was like, oh, I, I'm looking like a stereotype. I was like, I have a cat, but I love dogs. But I love dogs. But like, yeah, I have a cat, but I love dogs. And then over the years, I got over that. And I was like, I freaking love my cat. My cat's the best. I love her. And then eventually I got a dog. But now I'm like, I love my cat and my dog. I will no longer be like, I'm a dog person. I'm just an animal person. I love my babies. I, I Yeah, I feel like I experienced a similar but distinctly different uh, set of stereotypes with having horses. Yeah. I think people just like to make generalizations about the types of pets people own. And that combination with people loving to hate things that women enjoy mm-hmm. is just like a, a great recipe for annoyingness, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have encountered this a fair amount, and you'll have to tell me if you have as well. Have you ever seen someone encounter an aloof or unfriendly cat and then chalk it up to the unsavory behavior of the entire species? Meanwhile, an individual dog or an entire breed can have a bad reputation or behave badly. But of course, that doesn't represent every dog. No, totally, totally. I have one friend who had a really bad experience with a cat growing up, and she's kind of wary around them now. They make her really uncomfortable. But even she is so sweet with Lola and other cats in our lives um, and is is getting over that. But that's the most extreme I've heard of that, and she had a very justified reason for her fear. I feel like there is a lot of this happening for distinctly unjustified reasons. And I... yes. I think that these interactions, even just the idea that cats so clearly mirror how society is taught to engage with women as a group, mm-hmm. it is a red flag for me. It's such a red flag. It's such a red flag when someone's like, I hate cats. It's like, have you ever really interacted with one? And And for people to say all cats are aloof or mean or nasty or whatever first of all if uh, the meanest cat in the world if you're its person it's not mean second of all cats have a ton of different personalities and to just write them off yeah it's a huge red flag like what are you what are you trying to prove and you know that's not even addressing how folks interact with cats on a physical level so Dogs are pack animals, and they were domesticated to assist humans with things like hunting and herding and traveling and protection. Cats were not domesticated for such interactions. And Mm -hmm. mostly, it's historically been a more passive arrangement between humans and cats for pest removal. Until very recently, cats were primarily kept around for pest removal. Mm -hmm. And... They don't then have the centuries of selective breeding that make them extra happy and touchy and people-pleasy. And cats aren't pack animals. No. Well, sometimes. uh, Cats will have... I'm not saying cats don't interact in packs. I'm not saying cats don't travel in packs. I am saying cats are not pack animals. There's a difference. Okay. You look at, like, horses are herd animals. They are prey. Everything that they do is based on being in a herd. When they get away from other horses, they 
freak out if they don't feel safe. Like they are, their entire social structure is heard. You have Mm -hmm. a cat on its own. It's not like, oh, fuck, where are the other cats? I'm going to die. I'm a predator. And I don't hunt in a pack. I can hunt in a pack, but my societal structure isn't, let me teach you baby wolves how we strategically take down prey using this specific tactic. It's so interesting because that cats sit in this weird little pocket. Mm -hmm, They do. They really do. Of pet, but also wild, but also not domesticated, but also you bring it into your house. Yeah, and (laughs) that's not even to say like, like, I grew up with barn cats. Barn mm-hmm. cats are, like, a whole other thing. Like, they'll come into your house, but they're, they're no Lola. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, in the article, Why Not Liking Cats is Misogynistic, <laughs> Okay. Landon Morris writes for the Rutgers Observer, quote, Cats relate to women in this fight against control. Dogs relate to men because they're born into a system that serves them. Given that most civilizations are founded on a patriarchal structure, men can easily assimilate into spaces and align with other men, like wolves in a pack. Women, being minorities in patriarchal society, are often the only, if not one of the few, to occupy all-male spaces. The inability to create their own community leaves them vulnerable to being sought after by other men who attempt to control them for selfish reasons. Cats have very clear boundaries that manifest Mm -hmm. in don't touch me when I don't want to be touched. And people who have bad interactions with cats tend to be people who force their physical presence on the animals even when they're given clear cues to stop. Yes, 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 yes. The best way I have seen the people in my life so I I have a sister who's a dog that is not great with strangers. Um, and the people who have had the best experience with getting that dog to like them are the ones who treat him like a cat. Ignore him until he comes up to you. Let him do the interactions. Give him whatever treats we have and don't make eye contact. Don't acknowledge him until he's ready to come over and acknowledge you. The people who are like, I am so good with all dogs. Dogs love me. Get up in his face. And he he freaks out. So yes, boundaries. And cats. Yes, yes, yes. Your family is so good with animals. The fact that your sister was like, what is cat is just so funny. It's so funny. <laughs> so funny. It was very intentional of her just, I don't want to have to deal with this animal. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of red flags, for me, I pretty much know if someone isn't going to respect the physical boundaries of an animal, they aren't going to respect mine. Mm-hmm. And... Cats fall into the same sort of cycle of victim blaming that many women fall into. So person invades cats' physical boundaries against their will. Person gets scratched. Person says, I hate cats. When an aggressor blames the negative outcome of their aggression on the victim, they never have to reckon with their own understanding of their wrongdoing. Yes, it's the victim's fault for their reaction. (laughs) clearly Tracy and I love cats and have thought Mm -hmm. about this a fair bit. (laughs) In case you think that all these points mean all men hate cats, that is in no way true. And actually, the Ray Alexandra article from KQED reported that, quote, among millennials at least, more men own cats than women. 48% of men versus 35% of women. 
a lot of the men in my life either own cats or really enjoy cats. I don't know any men in my life that isn't a fan of cats, other than I guess my brother-in-law, <laughs> my one brother-in-law. I know a couple men, and every single one of them are so allergic to cats that it's like doctor's visit, like oh, big no. medication consideration. And they're not the type of like, I hate cats, I'm going to kill this cat and make life difficult. It's just like, please don't. Like, please don't. I know I'm not interacting with you, so you want my attention. But like, if you would not, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a few friends who are who have that kind of like, if they come over and, of course, Lola wants to be in everyone's lap all the time. I, I have a few friends that have to be like, I'm so sorry. You can't sit in my lap. You can't do it. Uh, most of them will cave and then just take an allergy med. But I, I do feel for, I mean, you included. You were like, I'm allergic. I can't do it. But then five minutes later, you're burying your face in her fur. I take so much Benadryl for Lola. <laughs> I'm also, I'm not allergic in like a big scary way. Yes. Um, and I think a lot of my issues comes from the fact that I didn't grow up in a household that had pets with fur. And right. naturally, people's bodies are just like, whoa. Yeah. Um, I also read in a couple locations, but I couldn't find a statistic that really validated it, that a lot of times the queer community has more cats than the straight community in the U.S., like members of that community. Yeah, I, I would... I have no statistics to back that up, too, but it feels right. Yeah. That's another one of those heard it through the grapevine moments. Like, eh, in, I'm intrigued. I would just say pets in general, because I also know a lot of people who have, who have dogs who identify as part of the queer community. Yeah, just pets. Everyone pets. Listen, <laughs> listen, I firmly believe this. Pets are the new kids. Plants are the new pets. Candles are the new plants. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love you. That's so brilliant. Oh, I, I TikTok came up with that. That's not me, but it's true. Okay, well, I heard it from you first, so you get my compliment. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> and I've discussed the sexism and cats link in my own life to varying reception. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, like to any man specifically who's fussed because obviously human women are not the same as house pets my big question is when was the last time you put yourself in a vulnerable position for a woman or a non-man like told someone to stop interrupting a woman at work or risked your friend's ridicule to say that a sexist joke is unacceptable, or used your identity and position of power to protect someone from physical or emotional harm, or sat down to listen to a vulnerable person talk about their experience with the express goal of learning and adjusting your own behavior to help them. Because <laughs> when I say that, it sounds like a quiz, and it is. Like, if... If you get fussed about people making articles about sexism and cats, if you don't have an answer for those questions, sit down. Metaphors aren't a one-to-one. -one. Mm -hmm. There are allergies and pet training and different individual experiences. But if you hear this really intriguing discussion going on, of which we've only touched on a small portion of it, and you're upset about the cats or the wording, you're missing a larger discussion about bodily autonomy and respect and identity. That's the point. It's easier to, to get mad at the other things than address those. 100%. <laughs>
So we could examine gendered language in around numerous things. Like we don't even have time to unpack baby clothes. Like that's a whole thing. Oh, don't even get me started. Lyra Baroditsky says in her presentation how language shapes the way we think for TED Women 2017, quote, Lots of languages have grammatical gender. Every noun gets assigned a gender, often masculine or feminine, and these genders differ across languages. So if you ask German and Spanish speakers to, say, describe a bridge, like the one here, and she holds up an example. Bridge happens to be grammatically feminine in German and grammatically masculine in Spanish. German speakers are more likely to say bridges are beautiful, elegant, and stereotypically feminine words, whereas Spanish speakers will be more likely to say they are strong or long, these masculine words, end quote. That's really interesting. So language matters. It matters a lot. And I would argue that the constant feminization of cats in language is the root of their subsequent treatment. It, it gives us this very unique look into how we as English-speaking Americans feel about what we feminize and therefore feel about women. And cats are a particularly unique look at that because they are living, breathing things with bodily autonomy. We're not talking about bridges. Mm -hmm. We're talking about something with a personality and a life. I have heard more than once, and I think even my own nephew might have said it, that there are a lot of kids who think cats are females and dogs are all males. I totally fall into that trap, too. Right? I find myself seeing cats and just us assuming she, her. Mm -hmm. like, I absolutely fall for it. Yeah. So I'm not surprised, of course. Yeah. Okay, now here's the reason this episode exists. My story today is very much inspired by the Stephen Burkhoff play Greek. And he's a playwright who began working in the late 60s, who was famously inspired by his experience as a second-generation Jewish immigrant during World War II, but also by Greek theater and Parisian mimes. And Burkhoffian theater is all physicality and poetry and expressionism. In this play, the Sphinx appears as a monstrous, sensual female figure who rages against men in the form of this massive monologue to the main guy, and she exists for like five pages, and it's amazing. In college, this was a text that I used in my voice production and speech class, which was a very big deal class for me. And... <laughs> So in the play, Oedipus contacts her, solves the riddle, and she dies. Mm -hmm. And in the monologue, which I edited the heck out of, I had the opportunity in this class to kind of transform her into this villainous evil queen kind of character. Um, and then later, an instructor had me take that same monologue and play it as a woman trapped in an asylum in the 1800s. Whoa. Which was brilliant. And it was so cool for me because the text was wordy and heady, and it was also written in 1980, so it had this specific flavor of feminism mm -hmm. and anger, and it's, like, absolutely a feast for a student who... For this, I was 
literally being tested on my pronunciation of every single syllable. No kidding. My nightmare. <laughs> it's fun. Um, <laughs> so here's a quote from Stephen Burkhoff's play Greek, edited, of course, because we don't have time for a five-page monologue unless I wrote it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> True. I learned a portion of this text once, and I think about this piece all of the time, so this will give you an example of why this episode exists. Who are you, little man? Mistake in the middle of the night. You've come to answer my riddle. <laughs> oh, you make me laugh, you fool man. You're pathetic. Unfinished. Not like me, never like us. A woman. A sphinx. Women are all sphinx. I could eat you alive and blow you out in bubbles. I devour stuff like you. Oh, send me strong men, you scrawny nothing. Look what they send me. Oh, nature's mistake in the ghastly dawn of time when women were women, androgynous and whole, and could reproduce themselves. All we need is your foul little seed, you gnat. Something that takes you 30 seconds of your life and us nine months we create, build, nourish, care for. How do you know that you are even alive? What signs do you have? A date with death? The hour you must attack? Unable to create, you must destroy? I am the earth. I am the movement of the universe. I am liquid, fire, and all elements. My voice rises octaves high and communicates with the spirits of the dead. The goodness of life. Woman. We. Sex. Sphinx. So go. You are small. Insignificant. Piss off, you worm. You make me vomit. That was amazing. I love that, and I love her. I love her, too. I would recommend this monologue to anyone. It's in the show notes. Okay. So, at the end of the monologue, he answers her riddle man, specifying, and I love this, that the third leg in the evening is not a cane, but an erection. <laughs> Good for him. It's... So it seems like the only obvious explanation with how yeah. the Sphinx is treated. Yes. And then he beheads her. Um, oh, well. Boo. So for my story today, I'm going to write from the perspective of Burkhoff's Sphinx as if she lived, because I would like very much for her to live, even though that's not how the stories go. <laughs> but it's how our story goes. Okay, I'm really excited for this. Your words are true, but that does not mean they are right. What walks on four legs in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening? Man. 
Every person who comes to my gate says man like a prayer. What walks on four legs in the morning, man. And two in the afternoon, man. It's man. I am man. Let me through. Let me in. Man, oh man, oh man. I do let them in because it's easier to say yes than to educate an entire army Ranks upon ranks of revolting self-worship. I am a god-destroyer of nations, fucker of many, shrinker of language. Man. So I say, yes, come on in. You see, yes has the incredible ease of only one word. No can take so very many. The answer to my riddle is woman, actually. Man can be a word to describe all the mortals somehow, or so they tell me. Man the all-encompassing, man the humanity, man the citizen, the army, the culture. To come and go as man, I cannot understand it. You call her wife. Ruler of the household, maker of food, creator of children. No voice, no rights, no vote, and yet, somehow, she still qualifies as man. Tell me how. Man the ruler, man the law writer, the war wager, yes, but even more. Tell me how a woman might become man the easy. The walks into a room crowned with respect, the intelligent without proof, the angry without criticism, the emotional without label. Tell me about the simplicity of man like the sunrise over an immovable mountain, to have opinions without doubt, and home and work together, the very measure of normalcy and comfort and health and habit. Defined by your ruler. Six or seven inches. Your voice pitched low. Caricature complete. Tell me I can have it. Man, oh man, oh man. The riddle is about one woman in particular. We all know her. She is the ever-present ever-future, distant perfection, the lust, the desire, the yoke of hatred strangling like a diamond necklace. Morning maiden, crawling through muck, hands and knees driven to the very core of the earth, sensual, feral, the manic riot of a spring bloom, flower petals as soft as spun sugar. Afternoon mother, Unflinching, bold, arms full of the world, and voice, a stentorian pronouncement of protection, a kiss for the mewling of the masses. Evening crone, bent like a willow branch, cane snap to attention, experience and time, life stretching back, reaching like a legacy for the stories upon which she built an empire of compassion. Age, its own diadem of rebellion. 
Men move through themselves in only one day, from plotting to warring to ruling, wake up and fight again, conquering in the span of a sunset. Women a month, each month a year, years gone by, and with luck, the evening of their lives is a clever slinking away from the eyes of man. Man the lust, man the danger in the night, man the taker, man the secret keeper. I ought to tell them, just one, to say to the hero at my feet, You are correct, sir, but you are not right. I'd devour them in an instant, armor crunching between my jaws, blood running down my chin. I could explain the riddle for the next millennia, and yet kill each listener in the following instant. Hey, hero, listening is no charity and knowing is no reward. But, and this I fear above all things, not sword, not claw, not time itself, to consume is to become. I might have my man tomorrow, taught and chewed and swallowed and digested and discarded. And then, I fear that never again, until the extinction of the world, would I find a woman to savor for my supper. Man inside me, you're welcome. But I do not want to know, as only an interior voice can explain, the way one rationalizes the exaltation of themselves at the expense of all others, to stand on the necks of the vulnerable and lean down to whisper, This is your fault. And yet, I too have enjoyed the necks upon which I've danced. The good men? No. I will not sacrifice this identity that I love for the education of one crawling egotist on the hunt for glory. Nor my own understanding of that empire of masculinity which I cannot yet fathom. There is another word, I think, that may be an answer to my riddle, which I would have to accept. The answer is also true, but not right. If a man stood before me and said, Monster, I would let him in. I know the language of heroes. There is only man and monster, after all. Slut, they say, monster. Bitch, Monster, whore, monster, nag, monster, mother, monster, wife, monster, daughter, monster. Woman is a monster. What walks on four legs in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening? Monster, let me in. That is... Without a doubt, my favorite thing you have ever written for the podcast. <laughs> I loved every single thing about that. I don't have words. That was incredible. That was beautiful, incredible. I, my favorite thing you have ever written on the show. Like, as you were starting it, I was like, oh, I'm really, really liking this. And then by the time I was the end, I was like, this is, I love this. I love this. So, this is my favorite. My favorite. 
I thank you, thank you. I well, I was introduced to the Sphinx, like I knew about the Sphinx, obviously, mm-hmm. but I was really introduced to the idea of the Sphinx through this Stephen Burkoff monologue, and I spent so much time with it, and I've used it a lot, and. My understanding personally of the Sphinx is just the divine female rage. Mm-hmm. This, this intelligence that is trapped mm-hmm. um, to, to be so knowledgeable and so powerful and yet to have at your disposal only one riddle. Yes. It, just the, the everything you had and the, the whole part of it being correct but not right and the way you wove through that and you wove through the anger and truly that is that is a a story that i could read slash listen to on repeat for years and get more things out of like rowan i cannot emphasize enough how much that is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing i've seen in a long time thank you i have been struggling for a long time i think in stories on this podcast and what i've been researching kind of the way that Monsters that are female or non-male have to interact with a man, the institution, mm-hmm. n- not not man, the individual, and hero, and how it is right. used as this shield against all other criticism. It's like kind of the good guy. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, I I like the Sphinx. I I turn to her very often, and. And this is bananas. So I wrote that on my notes app on my phone at like three in the morning, as is the way. Yes. So I wrote this piece about midway through my research because I I knew why I was doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then later, I stumbled upon this poem from 1973. It is called Breaking Open by Muriel Reichester. Okay. Okay. Long afterward, Oedipus, old and blinded, walked the roads. He smelled a familiar smell. It was the Sphinx. Oedipus said, I want to ask one question. Why didn't I recognize my mother? You gave the wrong answer, said the Sphinx. But that was what made everything possible, said Oedipus. No, she said. When I asked what walks on four legs in the morning, two at noon, and three in the evening, you answered man. But you didn't say anything about woman. When you say man, said Oedipus, you include women, too. Everyone knows that. She said, that's what you think. I was so fantastically happy when I found this poem. (laughs) She wrote, okay, so she wrote this toward the end of her life. She passed Mm -hmm. in 1980 at the age of 67. And I don't know why I feel so proud to have like mind melded across the centuries with this amazing feminist poet. She was a mentor to so many other feminist poets that I love, Anne Sexton, for example, and I'd never even heard of her. Okay, that's fantastic. I, does she have like a book of poetry or something? Like a, now I want to start a collection. She has a few and they've been republished and she's absolutely stellar and she gets visceral with it. And she is political without writing poems specifically about politics. Okay, yep, I, I totally get that. And finding this just made me 
feel so happy that there is just this legacy of trying to understand womanhood in mythology and in daily life through the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. So, man, oh, you did such a good job with this episode. I'm like so jazzed and intrigued and I want to, honestly, after we're done recording, I'm going to go buy a bunch of poetry books and <laughs> this was just such a good job. I know. I love poetry, man. Oof, man. I, we both love poetry. <laughs> man. <laughs> Witches, man. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we started off with sculptures in ancient Egypt about guys, mm-hmm. and then we trickled down through cats and goddesses and cats again, and here we are. <laughs> As we should. As we should be. Oh, good job. Thanks. Really, really good job. Thanks. So now that you've done all that work, it's time for you to tell me something good. Oh, this is cliche, I think. But my something good was actually, I had to dig up my book of Stephen Burkhoff's plays mm-hmm. for this. Um, And Stephen Burkhoff is an imperfect artist, but I have gotten so much good from his writing. I have learned so much about theater and writing and expression and the ways that you can talk about something without having to say that. Yes. I think so often I forget to return to things that have influenced me, media, especially books, like books that aren't fiction. Like I can open up a fiction book and go back into it, but this book of plays was so influential for me and to have to come back to it and then be like, oh, yes, I spent so much time reading this book not doing research <laughs> <laughs> you were you were researching it's all part of the process uh so it it i also there when i was working on this stephen burkoff monologue in school one of my teachers to challenge me would play a very very low note on a piano mm-hmm. and he'd say like talk here oh wow and it was really hard for me because um, yeah. I, I have a very high voice. Um, and le- le- learning through that. And then he would do things like, you know, do the monologue, but you're walking through sand. Okay, now do the monologue and you're walking in a field of flowers. Like, figure it out. What does that look like? And that that though that work seems like it is only for acting but it is so helpful for writing that mm-hmm. to come back to that book and then remember those lessons and then work on this episode and the, all of our episodes that were we have in progress was just really helpful and i hate to make my something good like oh the research for the podcast but nevertheless here we are that's great. I mean, it's not just the research. It was you getting to explore something that you love. So I love that. Yeah. And read books, guys. Who would have thought? So anyway, if anybody else wants to get excited about this book, it's Stephen Burkhoff Plays. And it's also in entirely PDF form in our show notes. Oh, nicely done. Tracy, tell me something good. My something good is also a book. No way. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I uh, recently finished reading Electric Idol, which is the second book in Katie Roberts' uh, modern retellings of Greek myth stories. So her first one is called uh, Neon Gods, and it's Hades and Persephone. Mm. The second one is Electric Idol. It is Eros and Psyche. Okay, Electric Idol is such a good title. Oh, yeah. 
These are, they're really interesting. So they take place in Olympus, which is a modern day city. There's a little bit of kind of magic in it in that it's like, it's really hard to get out of Olympus and get into Olympus. And there's a little bit of magic barriers between the upper city and the lower city where Hades rules. But the main, the city is run by Zeus, Hera, Demeter, Aphrodite, but those are titles. So people inherit the title or they earn the title. Um, so the first one is the story of Persephone and Hades. The second one is Psyche and Eros. They're very spicy, so fair warning for people. Um, but what's cool and what I really liked is that Katie Roberts took the character of Psyche and just made her this incredibly brilliant woman. Who She's this plus-sized woman, and that's like a part of who she is, and she's the social media the guru like she's just genius at navigating people um and the character of eros is like this really violent man he's not violent towards her he's basically he it's just not the way i would have expected an eros and psyche story to be told in a really refreshing way and i love the way she chose to create the characters and i just really enjoy katie roberts as a writer so um that is my something good, as I just finished Electric Idol. I might have to try Neon Gods. That actually sounds really fun. Yeah, I, I enjoy them. I, I really... Big fan. Um, check them out. We, we'll put them on our recommendations page. You can get them through Thrift Books and any other way that you get books. But we have a lot of ways that you can get books that are not specifically just through Amazon. Isn't Thrift Books owned by Amazon? Is it? Mm-hmm. Bookshop.org. Go with bookshop.org. <laughs> Bookshop. Everything's owned by four people, okay? There is no ethical consumption under late-stage capitalism. <laughs> we own this. This is our thing that we own. We're not those four people. We are not those four people. We own this. Um, thank you all so much for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> Remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we will see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our editor is Tyler Fetzik, our music is by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Say that again because you. Yeah, I really hurt my elbow. (laughs) I hit my funny bone and I was trying to play it cool. You you played it so cool. (laughs) Thank you. Yikes.